A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Take a minute and think about your dreams and ambitions. What goals have you set for yourself? Maybe there's a job opportunity, one you know you would be perfect for if only the right door opened up. When I first became a journalist, my goal was to work at Global Calgary. It's the station I grew up watching. I paid my dues and gained some experience by working in a smaller market and proved I would be an asset to their newsroom. And then I got the call. The right opportunity finally opened up and I became their crime reporter. And I've never looked back. I'm Nancy Hickst. Today on Crime Beat, the story of a young woman who was presented with a golden opportunity. Instead, it would tarnish her whole life. So I remember walking down the stairs, and this kills me. I'm walking down the stairs to my house, and my mom's in the kitchen, and she looks at me, and I look at her, and I start crying, and she falls to the ground, and she goes, I, f- I knew it. She didn't even, I didn't even say anything, and she's like, I knew it. This is Lisa's story. I first met Lisa back in 2003. We've done many interviews over the years. She's opened up to me about some really personal stuff. And through that, I've gotten to know her really well. The fact that you and I are still in contact after 17 years or whatever, whenever I met you the first time, that means something. That means something that you can still reach out to me and I can reach out to you and we can have this, it's, it's, a, it's a, a bond because of what you've had to listen to and what I've shared with you. It creates a bond. She's one of the strongest, most inspiring women I've ever met. Her beauty shines through inside and out. Lisa is not her real name, but that's what I've always called her in covering her case. I'm protecting her identity for reasons that will become clear later in this episode. She's really into sports, and from a very young age, she played baseball competitively. People always associate sports with men, to be honest. They do. It's just what, and then women who watch it just watch it because their boyfriends like it. It's like, not me. I sit at home and I'll watch Sports Center by myself. That's what I do. It's always been a huge part of my life and it will forever be. Lisa's in her mid 30s now. And she's the first to admit that she doesn't fit traditional stereotypes. If you look into my wardrobe, if you walked into my closet today, on the left hand side, you'd see about 75 dresses, and on the right hand side, you'd see about 75 jerseys. All from baseball, hockey, football. That is that is it. That's so, a perfect combination. <laughs> right? And then you have my, you know, my cleats and my baseball shoes, my runners, and then all my high heels. There's nothing in between. It's one or the other. Lisa has a special girl next door quality. There's something about her that makes her really easy to talk to. We have a lot in common, including a special love for feline friends. I also think it's really cool because you're a fellow like cat person. How do you remember this stuff? You're, you're good. I just relate to them. I love dogs, I love animals, but cats, they're independent. 
They're feisty. They're, they're just, they're great. She also loves to travel. Mom liked to take us places, so I went to the States a lot and Disney World and Disneyland and things like that. And then when I hit 18, I said, um, see ya. And I think I went to Thailand for six weeks. So yeah, I love um, going to a lot of different places, learning cultures, you know. What's the coolest place that you visited? Egypt. I did. I've been, well, I've been to Thailand. I lived in New Zealand. I've been there five times. I've gone to Europe. You know, I've gone, but Egypt by far was the most eye-opening, culturally awakening experience. So it was really good. After high school, Lisa worked several jobs to put herself through university. One of those was at a Calgary tanning salon. I'd work by myself. I'd have responsibilities to clean and book appointments and do all that. Um, just what you do at a tanning salon, the regular, answer the phone, clean up, do the laundry, all that stuff. Working at a tanning salon wasn't really in Lisa's career path. Her real interest was in law enforcement. It was a good job. It paid. It was nice, extra money. You're 19, you spend that on cell phone and whatever else. Lisa is a hard worker, and she's smart. And it seemed she made a good impression on the owners of the company. After just a couple of months at the salon, she was offered an incredible opportunity. I got a phone call from the owner saying that I was in line for a promotion to have my own store, which was when you're 19 years old, that's amazing. That is unreal. I was over the moon. Um, I was told not to say anything at the time because the manager didn't know that I'd be leaving until the details were finalized. Lisa agreed to keep the job offer confidential. She said she never met the owner in person, but she received several calls. She was told she would be contacted again when it was time to move forward with the new position. Then one day he called me, he said, Kay, you're going to be meeting my nephew tonight. And you know him. I go, oh, who is he? And he said, Marcel. And I had met this Marcel character because the manager of this tanning salon, that was her boyfriend. So I met him in passing. I was like, oh, he's your nephew. That's, that's awesome. He goes, yeah, he has a key for you. He's going to go over all this stuff. That day, she finished work like any other day. The only thing out of the ordinary was an issue with a light in the basement. It wouldn't turn off. The main floor of the building had the tanning salon, and in the basement, there were massage rooms. Lisa was excited about the new opportunity, and because she had met the owner's nephew before, it made her feel more at ease. That day, after work, she went home and told her mom all about the exciting job she was being offered. She was excited about the promotion, but she wasn't, because I worked that night, I think I worked till six, I closed up and I went home for dinner and I was living with my mom still. And I was like, I gotta go back at eight and meet Marcel. Um, I'm gonna get keys to this. She, she goes, I don't want you to go. I was like, mom, shut up. That's what I said. She goes, I don't feel good about this. And I was like, it's fine. It's 8 p.m. It's not two o'clock in the morning. So off she went to meet the owner's nephew. He's like, hey, how are you? And blah, blah, blah. So we sat at the desk, which is on the main floor, which there's windows everywhere. And then he, you know, he presented me the key. We talked 
strictly about this new place. It was, I don't, oh, I can't remember where it was going to be. I feel it was going to be in the Northwest, the new building. I have to tell you, when Lisa talks about the events of that night, I can see it on her face. It's like she's watching a movie of her own life in her mind. I can visualize everything. I can picture every I know what I was wearing that day I can tell you names of everyone like it's it's insane what your brain locks into 17 years is a long time but like how much it's affected me is beyond is beyond like I'm still affected she remembers the meeting seemed to go smoothly it is normal there's no red flags I talk about red flags now because I look for them I look um we talk strictly about ordering product, about this, that, and the other thing. And he knew his stuff. Everything is fine. We're about to leave. During their interview, Lisa mentioned she was having problems shutting off the lights in the basement. Marcel offered to take a look. Lisa was grateful for the help, and they headed to the basement. He showed her which switch to flip in the electrical panel. And that's when it happened. So I turn around to walk up the stairs and he grabbed me from behind. And I was like, what are you doing? And I'm giggling at this point because you don't, like you're giggling because you're uncomfortable and you don't know how to deal. You're like, what the fuck? And then he dragged me to the furthest end massage room. And I was like, what are you doing? And then it got real. Then it got scary. Then I'm crying and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, but you're just so pretty and I didn't think I had a chance with you. And I was like, what we can, and I'm saying, you name it, I said it to get out of that situation. You say whatever you need to say. And I was like, I have a boyfriend. I didn't have a boyfriend. I need to warn you, what you're about to hear is extremely disturbing. And he's like, I just wanted to have a date with you. You're so beautiful. And I was like, there's other ways around this. You're so scared. And then he pulled out a knife. And I was like, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. That's what I thought. I was like, I'm going to get killed. I don't know what's going on in my mind. This shit is scary. And when you pull out a knife from under a pillow, that where you're like, where'd this knife come from? You just say, I'm like, I won't tell anyone. I won't do anything. I promise. I promise. And that was before everything happened. The man Lisa knew as Marcel towered over her. He is about, oh, he's a big boy. He's, he's over six feet and he's like husky. So when he grabbed me and pulled me into the massage room, I was like, oh, my God. And then I still didn't know what was going to happen. I tried to get out of his grasp. I tried everything. He groped her and wrapped his hands around her wrists. He easily overpowered her. He, like, ripped ripped my panties off, like, aggressively, shoved me down on the massage table, and then he raped me. Lisa shut down and went into what she can only describe as survival mode. She said she didn't think things could get any worse, but they did. He wasn't, like, he didn't hit me. He didn't do any of that. But when he, and he's like, when he, like, raped me, it was, I'm clenching. I don't want this to happen. I'm trying to, but I didn't, like, do anything. I don't, and then I think the worst was, like, that's horrific on its own, but, like, sodomizing and like putting me on my he's like turn the fuck around and I'm like and I'm like this is not happening that will always stick in my head that was just a lot 
Lisa begged him to stop, to let her go. He raped her again. She was only 19 years old. He threatened her with the knife, and she was frozen with fear. I'll fucking kill you. I'll kill you and your fucking family. He knew my address. He knew I lived downtown. He knew all this about me because he got that information. All I knew is I needed to talk. I needed to say what I needed to say to get the fuck out of there. So I did. I won't tell anyone. It's okay. I get it. Like, it's totally fine. Um, Your girlfriend won't know. I'm just going to go home and I'll be back to work on Monday. I remember saying like, yeah, I'm just going to do some laundry. And we ended up... He left the room, and I remember being upstairs. I'm like, okay, I'm on the main floor. Like, this is good. How do I get to my car? What do I do to get to my car? And I just kept saying what I needed to say. You don't know what's going to happen. Are you going to make it out of this room? Or am I going to make it to my car? Is he going to come to my house and kill me? Is he going to do all these things that he says he's going to do? I don't know this person, and I don't know what he's capable of. Her attacker then went outside and had a cigarette. That's when Lisa saw an opportunity to leave. She started to walk to her car, but he blocked her and kept her there for another 15 minutes before he finally let her go. He's like, don't fucking forget. I know where you live. And I was like, I'm not stupid. And I'm at this point, I'm like, I'm not dumb. I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, because I want to get And I just said that. And I remember getting my car blocking the door and driving 100 and I must have been driving a 160 to, because I didn't know if he was following me. I didn't know anything. Lisa was terrified. She didn't want to go home. Instead, she confided in her best friend. And I broke down. I remember walking and I broke down to him and he's like, you need, you need to tell the police. And I was like, no, he'll fucking kill me. I can't. I can't tell my mom. I don't know why I trusted him. And he's like, you have to. And I was like, no. Later that night, Lisa went home and cried herself to sleep. I went to school the next day. I don't even know. I didn't shower. Thank God for that. That was the smartest thing I could have done. I woke up in the morning, just a write-off, bawling my eyes out. I'm at school. I didn't know what to do. Went to school, and I remember getting home, and I called an ex a friend of mine, but it was an ex-boyfriend from high school. And I called him and he's like, you're going to tell the police or I'm going to tell. And I was like, I, I can't. And he's like, you have to. So I remember walking down the stairs and this kills me. I'm walking down the stairs to my house and my mom's in the kitchen. And she looks at me and I look at her and I start crying and she falls to the ground. And she goes, I, f- I knew it. She didn't even, I didn't even say anything. And she's like, I knew it. And she knew something was wrong right away. And that's where we're at. She took me to the hospital. We got, you know, the swabs and the victim, uh, like the sexual assault doctor. You know, there's a specialized doctor. She came in. They found bruising and tears both ways. Found bruising on my body. And, yeah. Calgary Police sex crimes detectives investigated the case. Lisa learned her attacker, Marcel Perrant, pre-planned the assault. He hid the knife he used to threaten her under the pillow of the massage table. And that wasn't all. He used his real name when I met him, but not... He pretended to be the owner. His story was fabricated from the very beginning. The promotion, the calls, the entire thing was a lie. 
Lisa never spoke to the owner. It was Marcel Perrant all along. Even though identity wasn't an issue for investigators, they had trouble tracking him down and issued a release to the media. It took nearly six weeks for him to be caught. And in the meantime, Lisa lived paralyzed with fear, worried he would come after her. And then, one day when she was driving, she saw him. And I remember seeing him downtown. Downtown, and I called the police. I was like, he's right in front of me. And they're like, don't do anything. Like, it's fine. I was like, no, no. He needs to be in jail. And nothing happened. Yeah, he's still out there just roaming around. And I'm trying to go to school. I'm trying to, you know, I don't have a job anymore. I was just assaulted. I'm dealing with police. And, you know, all this stuff of trying to point out, you know, in a lineup, or not a lineup, but the picture lineup and story after story. I still have the transcripts. I still keep all of that. I have every newspaper article ever written. I have the transcripts from court. Like, it is such a huge part of my life. Marcel Perrant was 25 years old when he was arrested and charged with sexually assaulting Lisa. The court imposed a publication ban on her identity which is why I've always called her Lisa. She said the trial destroyed her emotionally. Court just made me feel like the biggest piece of shit ever because the defense attorney just rips you to shreds. That's their job is to poke holes in your story. But there was no holes to poke. When you tell the truth, the truth is the truth and never changes. I could tell you something from 17 years ago and it's not going to waver because I'm telling the truth. But so my story never changed, but you know, they're there to poke holes in it. But yeah, the police, I felt at times they were good, but I felt at times that it was, t- it was really tough because they're trying to get to the bottom of this and they're like, well, this doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense. I was like, well, I just got sexually assaulted. I'm sorry, my brain's not working right now. On December 15th, 2003, Marcel Perrant was convicted of sexual assault and possession of a weapon. He was sentenced to four years in prison. Four years, but he already served two. Like, fuck you. Honestly, like what a crock of garbage. You got, he served two years at remand. Well, he doesn't care. Like he's been in and out of remand in prison since he was, his rap sheet is through the roof, through the roof. What Lisa is referring to is the credit Perrant received for time he spent in custody before the trial. That significantly reduced the overall time he had left to serve. What's uh, interesting about this case is he served uh, one year in remand and ultimately got two years credit for that. So then he had to serve a remaining two years and six months in, in custody. That's Staff Sergeant Michelle Doyle. She's been a Calgary police officer for more than two decades. And before that, she worked for CPS as a civilian, including time as a 911 operator. Her experience as an officer ranges from frontline uniformed patrol to the economic crimes unit, to the behavioral science unit, and the high-risk offender program, better known as HIROP. It was in her role in HIROP that she first met Marcel Perrant. 
Calgary Police would get notified if an individual was going to warrant expiry. And so what that means is if you serve your entire prison sentence, uh, it's called warrant expiry. And that doesn't happen very often. Most uh, people get out on parole or, you know, that type of thing. So this individual um, was serving their entire sentence at Edmonton Max, and we were notified. I should note, if someone serves their sentence to warrant expiry, that's every day of their sentence. And that speaks volumes about the risk they pose to the public. Uh, It says generally that you're not manageable in the community. Uh, So throughout your time, serving your prison time, you've displayed something to corrections that indicates you're not uh, suitable for release. In this case, the Correctional Service of Canada sent Calgary Police information about Perrant. And then the high-risk offender unit conducted a risk assessment. This is a good time to tell you a bit more about Marcel Perrant. He's a career criminal. Court documents show he was abused himself as a child. And by the time he was a teenager, he was acting out inappropriately. As an adult, he committed property crimes and weapons offenses And at one point, he was convicted of escaping lawful custody and obstructing a peace officer. Perrant is considered to be illiterate. He didn't complete any formal schooling beyond elementary school. Court records show his employment record isn't much better. He's been fired from most jobs he's had. As of 2009, his longest period of employment was for six months when he worked as a drywaller. Perrant has been diagnosed with a number of mental health disorders, including antisocial and borderline personality disorder. After being convicted of sexually assaulting Lisa, Perrant refused to participate in sex offender treatment programs. Perrant was assessed as a high risk to reoffend. In 2006, Calgary police applied to have him monitored for a year after his release. It's essentially that you fear the person is going to go do something like commit a violent offense or a sexual offense. And there's also a section relating to criminal organization. And so what the police do, um, our high risk unit would go to the courts with um, uh, justification as to why this person should be monitored. After some discussions with police, Perrant eventually consented to follow a list of conditions. Typically, sex offenders will have to uh, do outpatient treatment. And so that was one of his conditions. He was referred uh, to forensic out treatment. The other conditions, again, were reporting to us. Um, and they would have to also report if uh, he was to travel outside of the city limits uh, and gain approval from us and uh, not to carry any weapons. So because he had a weapon uh, during his offense, uh, you know, obviously restricted from having any weapons, um, you know, that type of thing, the conditions have to uh, relate to the index offense. 
Um, otherwise, they can be seen as overreaching and imposing on someone's human rights. So that is part of the um, the information that you have to present when you go to, before the judge to say why this condition relates and uh, why you're asking for it. Perrant agreed to be monitored for 12 months. So the uh, conditions were in effect for a full year. During that time, he did report to us. Uh, he did attend his treatment. Again, whether he actually engaged fully in that, I think that's, you know, to be questioned. He didn't reoffend during that time and impose any kind of breach of those conditions. So what happens is uh, essentially the order comes to an end and if there isn't something where we can return to the courts and say we still have a fear that they're going to offend, it makes it very difficult to extend it. Essentially your hands are tied. And you know again, offenders that come out and have no intention of changing their behavior often do reoffend uh, in some way. At the end of that year, Perrant was a free man. By then, it had been about five years since he violently sexually assaulted Lisa. Now, he would be out in the very same city she was living in. I walked into Safeway, and I, this guy walked by me that I thought was Marcel, and I had a panic attack in Safeway. I was bawling my eyes out uncontrollably in the flower section. I had to call my sister. I was like, and I couldn't breathe. Once again, Lisa was paralyzed with fear. In January of 2008, exactly what police and Lisa predicted would happen, happened. Marcel Perrant offended again. Just over five years after Lisa was violently sexually assaulted, he attacked another woman. It happened at another tanning salon. This time, he robs a tanning salon and he brandishes a knife. There's uh, a gal working in the salon and essentially he gets her to give him the money. He takes her outside of the building um, to an area where there's some bushes and uh, at that time he grabs her in a sexual manner but that's where the offense ends. He takes off running and the uh, salon employee returns to the business. In the trial, it was revealed Perrant ordered the woman to kiss him. He groped her over her clothing. She fought back and somehow convinced him to let her go. She went back to the tanning salon. And thankfully, a patron is coming in for a tan and she alerts him that she's just been robbed and he sees Perrant fleeing on foot and uh, gets in his vehicle and uh, follows him and it was amazing uh, observation by this fellow and also great police work so the police were there Really quickly, uh, the witness was able to maintain what we would call a long eye, uh, so not getting too close, but reporting to police where he was, and he was caught. Marcel Perrant was convicted of uttering threats to cause death, sexual assault with a weapon, 
possession of a weapon, and unlawful confinement. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, double the sentence he received for the violent assault on Lisa. The prosecution also applied to have Perrant designated as a long-term offender. A long-term offender is monitored in the community for 10 years after they're released from prison. The court ruled Perrant was likely to offend again and cause injury or severe psychological damage to other victims. The long-term supervision order was granted. The LTSO took effect in April of 2014. That's when he was released from prison. A violent repeat sex offender who attacked two women in Calgary has once again been released from jail. This time, though, he's in Vancouver. But as Nancy Hicks reports, one of his victims here believes he could return to our city and will strike again. Marcel Perrant has been in and out of jail for years for violent sexual offenses. His most violent attack was just over 10 years ago when he repeatedly raped a woman at a Calgary tanning salon. Very violent. I had bruises all over my body. He sexually assaulted me. He sodomized me. It was very, it was the scariest thing I've ever been through in my life. This week, once again, Perrant was released from jail. And now he's out again. And he, I give it six months and he's going to reoffend again. He had conditions when he was let out after me. He, had a, he was on probation for a year. Did that stop him from going and trying the exact same thing again? No, he'll never stop. The parole board has deemed Perrant a high risk to reoffend violently. It says right here, like it's right here about how violent he is. Sure, just let him out. Call it a day. Lisa believes there are no conditions that will protect women as long as he's out of jail. I wish I lived in the States for this reason, because he'd be locked up for life right now. But we're in Canada and that doesn't happen. A few months later, Perrant went AWOL. He walked away from his Vancouver halfway house. A Canada-wide warrant was issued for his arrest, and Vancouver police warned the public to use caution if they came across him. He is considered to be dangerous. Um, we don't want anybody approaching him. Uh, we'd rather that someone phone 911, uh, the local police can come and uh, have a chat with Mr. Perron and return him. Lisa worried he would return to Calgary. He still had family in the city. Once again, she was left feeling vulnerable, looking over her shoulder and anxious about her safety. But Perrant's taste of freedom didn't last long. He was arrested the following day and was sent back to jail for just over a year. In mid-2016, he was released again into a BC halfway house. Two months later, he went missing again. It took police just one day to track him down. He was arrested at a woman's apartment. In Vancouver, he was dating a girl under a different name, so she wouldn't find out who he was. Like, this is malicious behavior, and it's not normal, it's not natural, it's not safe for anybody. So when think about when that supervision order is done. What do you think is going to happen? According to parole documents obtained by Global News, that woman was not aware of his criminal past. Perrant admitted to meeting her online 
and they had already gone on several coffee dates. He did not tell the woman his real name. He used an alias to hide his criminal history. Once the woman was told the truth and made aware of Perron's past, she was traumatized and said she wanted no further contact with him. Perrant briefly went back into custody, but within a few months, he was again back out in the community and still living in BC. Since he's been under the long-term supervision order, he's gone unlawfully at large three times. Two of those involved unreported relationships with women. In its most recent decision, the parole board noted that Perrant has an abysmal record of compliance with his LTSO. The most recent psychological risk assessments indicate he's still considered a high risk to reoffend violently and sexually. The parole board said he has limited supports in the community and struggles with employment and supporting himself financially, which could increase the risk given his prior record for robbery. I think um, we need to be cautious but not paranoid. You know, we still need to live our lives freely, and I think Canada, for the most part, is a very safe place. But at the same time, there are dangerous people in the community, and, you know, one of the best things you can do is, is trust your gut and don't be afraid to get a good look at someone or don't be afraid to report something suspicious because... Um, it may well be suspicious and it may be somebody up to no good or, you know, pre-planning some type of offense. Recently, Lisa was contacted by Victim Services and notified that Perrant was seeking to move back to Calgary. For now, that request has been denied and he remains in B.C., he still has to follow conditions, including no alcohol or drugs. He can't access or join any dating websites. And he has to report all intimate relationships and friendships with women to his parole supervisor. I've tried on several occasions to reach Marcel Perrant for comment, including for this podcast. He declined the most recent request for an interview just days before this episode was released. In five years, in November of 2025, Perrant's long-term supervision order will expire. At that time, he will once again be free to go wherever he wants, without any kind of monitoring. Lisa feels that puts her in danger. It haunts her to know she could just run into him on the street. It is very scary that he could potentially come here and I could be walking downtown and see him. Like, I don't even know my reaction. What, what, I, what would I do? I can't call him in and be like, arrest him. He hasn't done anything. Now that I thought I saw him at that Safeway that one time, I felt so sick to my stomach that I thought I was going to puke everywhere. I was like, <gasps> and I was like scared. I'm like, do I run away? Like, what do I do? Do I face him head on? Because what would happen if he saw me? I know he'd remember me. You don't forget about the girl who put you in jail. I'm sorry. Lisa's nightmares will never end. 
every detail of her attack replays in her mind over and over again. Over this many years, I would say thousands, thousands. Because it's not just, when things like that happen, it's not like, it's not just the rape or the sexual assault. It's the whole thing around it. It's the whole premeditation. It's the whole, I was vulnerable and I was duped. I was duped into believing and buying this crock of shit story that I was going to get promoted. So there's my trust gone, gone. And it's been gone for 17 years. I don't trust people. My control is gone. So now I'm in control of everything in my life. Like I just did a 180. So now I have to be in control of everything because if I ever lost that again, I don't know what I'd do. So it doesn't just like stay there for a day or two days or a month or 17 years and counting. Lisa has fought to make a difference and used her own traumatic experience to help others. So I decided to stay. I was a counselor for nine years for troubled teens. I worked with kids who were sexually assaulted prostitution, troubled kids, drugs, all the things that in my life I've dealt with. And it was, of course it was, it was, I related to these kids on such a, and a wonderful level. And I will always be so grateful for that job. I didn't leave because I didn't love it. I did, but it is very taxing on your mental health and the things I saw on a daily basis. It was really hard. So one day I just kind of made the decision for my mental health. I needed to take a step back. I but have nothing but wonderful things to say about the company and the job. And I still see some of the kids sometimes that I saw, you know, four years ago and they run up and hug me and it's, it was amazing. Regardless of how hard Lisa tries, understandably, she has some scars that will never heal. Trust, I've never been able to kind of regain that. I don't, it takes a lot for me to get there. The control that's been really affected all my relationships. I was not, you know, I dated someone after when I was, I think we were 20 when we met, 21. And he, the things he had to deal with, with me, like no, no man should ever deal with, but he stuck around through all my crazy <laughs> because it was justified crazy. It wasn't me just being a crazy person out of my own, you know, and I used crazy lightly, but um, he, it changed the dynamic of all my sexual relationships, every one of them. I couldn't do it. I could not, and I, I couldn't have sex with the person because I just kept going back. So you're in a relationship and you love your partner and you can't show them vulnerability and you can't show them any of this because you've lost it all. Despite the weight that she carries from that awful day, she says she doesn't regret going to police and reporting the attack. No matter what, coming forward or not, you're going to be dealing with this for the rest of your life. Whether you're going to deal with it internally, where you're not talking about it and it's like the personal, or you can deal with it where you have support, where you have the counseling. Not everyone has family, but there is support when you come forward. There's a ton of it. I still, um, the doctor that did my initial check after everything happened, I actually went to see her like a year ago. Like... So there's, there's the doctors, there's the counselors. I had a lady that came to me and was like my court supporter. There's so much support. So you're not alone, even if your family isn't there or your friends. And I had, you know, I had a boyfriend that came to court. I had a best friend. I had my dad, my mom, my sister. Like I had a big support. I it was also to show him like, you don't win, buddy. 
and I'm here and I'm strong and I'm not a victim. Even though you tried to make me one, I am, yeah, I'm going to get through this. And I have. <laughs> you know, yeah, you do. You get through it. I never quit school. I continued working, got my degree, traveled the world, bought a house, had relationship, well, had mediocre relationships <laughs> because of my own issues, but I'm still, I'm, I'm successful. And it pushed me to be a, a, a better person and it pushed me to be stronger. Although I wish it never happened, but I wouldn't have been who I am today if it didn't. Thank you for listening and letting me share Lisa's story with you. She hopes her story will empower other women. She also hopes people will pay attention to the public warnings from police. Look at their faces and know who's out there. I pay a lot of attention. And now that the social media is so huge, if this would have happened now, his face would be plastered all over Facebook, shared a trillion times, you know, like that's how it works. But it didn't. It happened in an era where there wasn't anything. Um, but I always pay attention when I see that stuff on social media or anything like that. I'm like, ooh, who is this person? Who just got... And there's stuff in Calgary all the time, like high risk or this did that. I'm like... And I always think a part of me is like, is this going to be him? Will there be a picture of him one day and then I'll, that's when I'll relive everything. But I'm in a really good place. Therapy's helped. Time has helped. All these things, right? So. If you've been the victim of a sexual assault or know someone who has been, please consider contacting police or call 911. If this is the first time you've listened to Crime Beat, Please go back and take the time to check out the other stories I've shared. These are all such important cases. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and I'd love to have you give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lentella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson, for his work on this episode. If you have a question about one of the episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.